while you're turning there, I want to thank the Belisarios. I asked them uh, last uh, moment to uh, do the, the Advent reading. They don't know it, but I was calling them the Belisarios uh, for stepping in. Um, as I was mentioning, Joe is Joe Bethany is sick. Uh, we want to mention him. Uh, we will mention him uh, later in our prayers. Um, and Dixon came home from the hospital, and uh, and also uh, Michelle Kelly is home from the hospital. She was in the hospital uh, this week receiving um, antibiotic uh, uh, cocktails to knock out the the infection in her body. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, as we come now to open your word, we pray for your blessing to be upon the reading and proclamation of it. Most of all, we pray that you would open our, the eyes of our souls to see Jesus Christ, to receive him, to see him and receive him as the source of all grace uh, from whom we draw uh, one blessing after another, from whom we draw power to uh, follow you and obey all things which he has commanded. We ask in his name. Amen. This past Tuesday, NASA released a video from their Juno spacecraft uh, as it passed by the Earth. I don't know if you saw any of these videos. Um, the Juno spacecraft is on its way to Jupiter. And so in order for it to gain the speed that it needed, what they did was when, they, uh, when it lifted off, they shot it around the Earth's orbit um, to use the Earth's gravity as a slingshot to, to hurl it toward uh, Jupiter. Um, and it is now headed toward Jupiter at 8,800 uh, miles per hour. And while it was orbiting uh, the Earth, it sent back some incredible video of the Earth way off in the distance. And it's, what it's doing is it's heading back, as it's heading in orbit, it's heading back toward the Earth, and it, hit, and it goes right between the Earth and the moon, but while it's approaching, you can see the earth is this little bitty dot, and you can see the moon revolving around the earth. And um, the, um, the video is being called the Heavenly Waltz. And uh, in this video, the earth appears as just a small little dot, and the moon as this much smaller dot. Uh, rotating around the earth. This video helped, re helped me remember just how small we are in, in the big scheme of things. Uh, we are just a small dot in a very large solar system. And our solar system is just one of hundreds of billions of solar systems in our Milky Way galaxy. And our galaxy is only just one of hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. Even if you scale it down just to the earth. I'm just one 
of 7 billion people living here on earth. Brandon is just one of 18,000 cities in the United States. Westminster Presbyterian is only just one of about 125 churches that's here in the Brandon area. Everyone has their areas of importance. Um, whether you're a spouse, you're important to your spouse. If you're a parent, you're important to your children. If you're an employee, you're, you're important to your employer. As a neighbor, you were uh, important uh, in your uh, the area in which you live. As a member of this church, uh, you are important uh, to our congregation. But the overall point that I'm driving at is that we are not as significant as we like to seem uh, that we are like to think that we are. Daniel chapter 4 verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Isaiah 40 says, All the inhabitants of the earth, I'm sorry, the nations are only a drop in the bucket to the Lord. He considers them as nothing but dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as if they were only fine dust. I've taken this time to remind us of our insignificance, of our very tiny place in the universe. Because Genesis chapter 41 is often thought to teach the opposite. The message of many books on Genesis 41 and on the life of Joseph, the message of many sermons and Bible studies on Genesis 41, teaches that Joseph remained faithful to God. Therefore, God rewarded him with fame, with riches, and with a family. The implication of so many Bible studies and sermons on, on Genesis 41 is that if you remain faithful, God will reward you with these same or, or similar blessings. Uh, the blessings of fame or, or fortune or family. But you know what? There are many Christians who have remained faithful to God, but they were never known they lived in poverty all their lives. And they were rejected by their families. And they died in relative obscurity. The popular version of Genesis 41 is a very Americanized version. Bodie Bauckham calls uh, Genesis 41 in the way it's normally interpreted as the American cinema interpretation. And the reason he says this is because we're so so used to seeing movies where the character arc um, of these movies is such that um, the person at the beginning of the movie starts out with nothing. And the climax of the movie is where they have uh, received wealth and fame and all these other good things. And... Um, this is, this is the interpretation that is basically the, the feel-good, rags-to-riches uh, type of story. And so you get sermon titles that I saw this week in, in my studies. Uh, from Prison to Pinnacle. Or From P 
pit to peak. Uh, as if Joseph and his being let out of prison and being made number two in all of Egypt is the climax of the life of Joseph. Uh, let me assure you, it is not. In fact, just the opposite is taught here in this passage. Joseph's attitude is that he is simply a servant of the Lord. Whether God has him in a pit, he's a servant of the Lord. Whether God has him in a prison, he's simply a servant of the Lord. Whether God puts him in the palace of Egypt, he simply sees himself as a servant of the Lord. Joseph trust in the Lord. Joseph's priority is the Lord. The trappings of fame, of fortune, and of family that are foisted upon him in Joseph's mind are only incidentals. They're not really what is important to him. But in Genesis 41, it's common that we focus on those incidentals that Joseph seemed to think were relatively unimportant. Um, I think because we, or when we, when we focus on the incidentals, it, it exposes our hearts as being too materialistic. It lets us know that in much of American Christianity, and maybe even in our own hearts, God has become simply incidental. I'm not going to read this whole passage because I want us to focus our attention on a few specific verses. However, uh, it's important that we know the flow of the passage. And so here's what happened. Joseph had been languishing in prison. Uh, he'd been languishing in prison probably uh, ten years, nine years, something like that. We don't know exactly how long. But then uh, when the chief cupbearer and the chief baker had these dreams, Joseph interpreted their dreams. They were let out of, of prison. Well, uh, both the chief baker and chief cupbearer were let out of prison. The chief baker was executed. The chief cupbearer was was uh, restored back to his original position. And then the scripture says here in um, in chapter forty one, verse one, after two whole years. In other words, the chief cupbearer forgot about Joseph. He did not mention uh, to anyone that he had interpreted their dreams. He just forgot about him. So Joseph had been languishing in prison for two more years after the chief cupbearer had been released. And then Pharaoh has this series of dreams one night where he saw seven fat, healthy cows who were being eaten by uh, skinny, sickly cow, by seven skinny, sickly cows. Then he saw in his dream another, another vision uh, where seven plump, healthy ears of grain were then being devoured by seven skinny, sickly ears of grain. And this greatly troubled Pharaoh, so he called all his wise men together, um, but no one could tell him the meaning of his dreams. No one could interpret them. And then, um, 
verse 16. I'm sorry. Uh, verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. In other words, he remembered those things that caused him to be thrown into jail. And he remembered how uh, there was this young Hebrew named Joseph who uh, interpreted his dreams accurately. And it happened just as, as uh, Joseph had said it would. So Pharaoh gets excited. He, he sends for Joseph. He had Joseph cleaned up and clean-shaven. He was released from prison. And I want you to look with me at verses 15 and 16 uh, as I read them, because this is important. Verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard that it is. I heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, "It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer." There are two things that I want us to notice here. First of all, Joseph disavowed any personal credit. Uh, again, verse 16. It is not in me. Actually, in the Hebrew, this phrase, it is not in me, is one Hebrew word. We can almost, well, we can't translate it with, with, uh, with one word if we said it fast. Not me. <laughs> it's kind of like what he's saying. Um, he is so intent on not taking any personal credit here. Now, we like for other people to think high thoughts, high and lofty thoughts about us. We like people for, we like for people to notice us. Uh, and Joseph has been let out of, of prison, possibly only temporarily. You'd think that he'd want to make an impression on Pharaoh. Um, and he's standing before Pharaoh's regal court. And he simply says, Not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then this brings us to the second thing I want us to notice from verse 16. Uh, Pharaoh believed himself to be God incarnate. All of the, the ancient Egyptian writings that we have uh, refer to the pharaohs, or have the pharaohs referring to themselves as gods. You know, so we have the, the, the great pyramids and whatever for them to be buried in. And here is Joseph calmly, matter-of-factly saying that the true God will give Pharaoh an answer. In other words, Joseph is saying to Pharaoh's very face that God was superior to Pharaoh and that God was superior over all the gods of Egypt. This ended up being a very effective witness. Uh, Joseph simply stated what he believed to be true. And I think this, this approach can, can, um, can provide for us a very effective opening for discussions of the Gospel. You know, the hardest part of evangelism is the first ten seconds. How do you open the discussion? And I think this, this approach by Joseph just strikes me as, just, as being wise. Um, if you don't know how to challenge 
the, the claim, the truth claims of others, or if you don't want to start off on a bad foot, and simply without challenging another person's truth claims, simply straightforwardly, confidently state what you believe. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. That could be a very powerful witness. You telling an unbeliever, I prayed and God answered my prayer. I went to church because I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I follow Him. Or maybe if, you, if they are in need, how may I pray for you? And just simply, straightforwardly, confidently speak of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not confrontational. It simply opens the door to the Gospel. You can think of it almost like a waltz. You have taken the first step. How will they respond? And if they respond, which they are likely to do, then the dance is on. You've gotten past that first ten seconds and you're able to naturally have a discussion about the Gospel. And so here's Joseph. Before Pharaoh's entire royal court standing there confidently, straightforwardly talking about his God. And Pharaoh uh, is not um, is not offended by this. In fact, it encourages him, and so he tells his dreams to Pharaoh. I mean, to Joseph in verses 17 through 24. Look with me at verses 25 through 32 as I read this passage of scripture. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, "The dreams of Pharaoh are one." God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Again, here is Joseph confidently saying, this is what God is about to do. Joseph not only interpreted the dreams, he also uh, said that God is in control of Egypt's future. In other words, Joseph is testifying that God is the only God. That God is the sovereign God. 
presidents will bring people into the Oval Office to intimidate them with the trappings of power. Charles Colson, uh, who directly worked uh, for President Richard Nixon, said that the lions of Congress, referring to the congressmen, the lions of Congress became the lambs of the Oval Office. I was talking with Jim Eggert last night at the the uh, at the, um, the progressive dinner, and we were talking about President Johnson and how he was a big, tall Texan, and he would come and invade your your personal space, get right up in your face, and how with his big ears he would look down on you and intimidate you, being the president of the United States. How intimidating. Or to bring a congressman that you need to persuade, you bring him into the Oval Office, the trappings of power. Um, uh, Colson said, made them wilt like lambs. And so here's Joseph in Pharaoh's royal court with all his wise men gathered round, speaking to the most powerful man in the world at that time. He is speaking boldly, confidently, straightforwardly about the true God and telling him that God is ultimately in control of Egypt's future. And I think equally remarkable is Joseph's statement in verse 32. Again, verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Let me ask you, how many dreams did God give to Joseph way back in Genesis 37 when God revealed to Joseph that his family would bow down and serve him? you remember how many dreams? Two different dreams. And so here he's telling Pharaoh, God gave you this same dream two different ways, just as he gave to Joseph back when Joseph was a young 17-year-old. And, and, and Joseph says, this means that it is fixed by God and God will soon bring it to pass. I believe that Joseph interpreted his brother's anger when they got angry with him and threw him in that empty cistern into that pit. I believe he interpreted it in the same way as he's telling Pharaoh. He had these two dreams. His brothers are angry at him. They threw him in a pit. They sold him into slavery. And Joseph is thinking, those dreams that God has given me are beginning to come true. I think he interpreted the events in his life as horrible as they were, as the beginnings of God bringing to pass what God had promised him. What a faith. He's 17 years old. You know, I hear people say, I I think in... in, um, to try and give the the teenagers an excuse that, especially male teenagers, that their mind is not fully developed until they're 24, 25, and so you've just got to put up with their immaturity. Here's Joseph, 17 years old, with a faith that is strong, 
that is steadfast, that is confident, that will not be bent. Where is there anything about his brain not being fully developed and and not as responsible? Maybe there's truth to all that. I'm not a scientist or a psychologist. But when God acts in faith, God matures us. And every one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, are responsible to trust in our God. Joseph, I believe, knew that every day that he spent in adversity, that he spent in suffering, that he spent in slavery, that he spent in that awful prison, he knew was just another step in God's master plan to fulfill the dreams that He had given to him when he was 17 years old. That God is the faithful God. That God is the sovereign God. That God was in control of His life, bringing God's will to pass in Joseph's life. So then when Joseph is let out of prison and he's presented before Pharaoh, he simply sees it as a part of God's master plan continuing to unfold. His trust in God gives Joseph the freedom to take no credit for being able to interpret dreams, to to proclaim God's sovereignty before Pharaoh as a matter of fact with great confidence. I think it also frees Joseph from self-concern. So Joseph continued to speak his mind to Pharaoh. He, sur- he surmised that the severity of the famine would, um, that would arrive in seven years after the seven uh, years of abundance, that really what was needed was uh, some careful planning. Therefore he said to Pharaoh, uh, verse 33, that he would need to choose a wise and, and careful administrator to make sure that Egypt is cared for. And Pharaoh says, yeah, that does sound wise. Okay, you're, you'll, you'll do just fine. And so in one day, Joseph goes from being in this prison to being cleaned up, presented before Pharaoh, and then made number two in all of Egypt. And you get the sense from Joseph that it's God's plan unfolding. I'm just a servant. And God is being faithful. It's remarkable. He's made second in command in Egypt. And to further Joseph's authority, Pharaoh gave Joseph all the trappings of of Egyptian royalty. He even gave Joseph a new name. uh, Zephanath Paniah. And then he also gave Joseph a wife from the daughter uh, the wife from the from um, from a, a prominent Egyptian priest uh, gave him his daughter as a wife, and of course you know the story. Joseph proved himself to be a masterful administrator. He saved Egypt from from certain ruin. But this presented Joseph with another temptation. Would he become so saturated with Egyptian culture? that he would forget the covenant, or he would forget the Lord, forget the covenant promises that God had made to him. Look at verses 50 through 52. 
before the year of famine t- came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharia, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my in all my father's house. The name of the second he, he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Je- Joseph gives his names, uh, gives his children Hebrew names, not Egyptian names, but Hebrew names, and uh, the names reflect that, that uh, he was still steadfastly trusting in the Lord. In other words, Joseph... Uh, and his in his trust in the Lord, it freed him from the temptation to engorge himself on the materialism and debauchery that were most assuredly part of the Egyptian court, that were most assuredly offered to him as being number two in all of Egypt. To conclude, Joseph was just as susceptible as we are to temptation. Whether it's lack of faith, whether it is materialism, whether it is uh, the temptation to complain when we are undergoing suffering and adversity, but he avoided giving into it. He wasn't any better than us. Uh, he wasn't given a better quality of grace than we are given. He didn't have a better Savior than we have. Instead of, instead of looking at Joseph's grace, I think what we need to do is look at our own. The reason we are so, so much more easily drawn into temptation than Joseph was is because our faith is mixed with materialism so often of the time with worldliness, with self-seeking. God has become for us incidental. A.W. Pink, in writing on the state of the American uh, church and American Christianity, this was back in the 1950s, he says, the most dishonoring conceptions of the rule and reign of the Almighty are now held almost everywhere to countless thousands, even professing Christians, the God of the Scripture is quite unknown. The God of this century no more resembles the sovereign of holy writing than does the dim flickering of a candle, the glory of the noonday noonday sun. We have a small conception of God. The reason our small our conception of God is so small is because our view of ourselves, our view of materialism, our view and our longing after worldliness shrinks Him in our estimation. The good news is God worked in Joseph. And Joseph did not produce this faith on his own. It was a faith that God gave to Joseph. That same faith that we have and we that we draw from the Lord Jesus Christ.
Joseph was a little different than we are. Simply because God used Joseph to point us to someone even better than Joseph. Joseph was just like we are. But he was used to point to Him who is the source of every blessing. To, to point to Him who was tempted not just in a few ways like Joseph was, but in every way. And in every instance, He was without sin. Joseph, as we're going to learn in a couple of weeks, was a temporal Savior to save His family from famine. Jesus Christ, the one to whom Joseph points, is the true Savior who came and because of His great love for us, laid down His life in our stead, took it up in glory for our justification. Christ, as it says in John chapter 1, is the source of every blessing. He is the bottomless pit of every good. Lean upon Him. Draw from Him that faith that calls Joseph to be an overcomer. Draw from Christ that faith that calls Joseph to be able to go through adversity without complaining. Draw from Christ that faith that causes us to lose ourself. Draw from, draw from Christ that faith that causes us to look beyond ourselves to what God is doing in us. Draw from Christ that faith that allows us to say, I'm not significant. I simply want to be a servant of God. I want to bloom where He has planted me. Let's pray.